the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Is this on? It is? It is? There it is. Okay. Glad you're here this morning. I want to talk to you this morning about this gospel reading. It's very challenging. Very challenging. Big idea is God's radical love requires our kind treatment of those who mistreat us. God's radical love requires our kind treatment of those who mistreat us. It's not an easy thing to do. He says, but I say to you that hear. I say to you that have ears to hear what I'm saying. Not everybody hears the same thing, or not everybody processes things the same way. So I'll be talking to you this morning, and there will be people who hear this and say, I needed to hear that. I need, this is what I need to do because of, of that. And others will say, that was nice, but not really take it on board because you're not ready. I'm not always ready to hear what people are trying to tell me either. Right? Just saying. I mean, sometimes got to have ears to hear every now and then. He is just finishing up the Beatitudes right before this very difficult passage. He's doing the blessed are, blessed are, blessed are those who. And what he's really saying is, this is how my followers will behave and live their lives. As challenging as that will be. He says, love your enemies. Four words for love in Greek. You know, eros is romantic love between a husband and a wife, man and woman. Not in the New Testament, but it's in Greek. There's storge, which is a love between fam it's family, mom, mother, father, children. Uh, phileo, which is not a fish. It's another Greek word for love. Um, brotherly love band of brothers, and it's Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. And then there's agape. This is the word that Jesus uses today. Agape is the word that he will most often use when he's saying love. It's unconditional. It's unconditional. It is not a feeling. It's an action. It's a decision. It is not an emotion. It's something we do. And because it's something, it's because it's not a feeling or an emotion, it's something that can be commanded. When he says, love your enemies, it's not a suggestion. He's commanding us to do this because it's not a feeling or an emotion. It's a decision and an action that we make. This is the way that God loves us. God loves me regardless of the way I feel about him when I think of him. This is what, when you, when you get married, I will love you even if you don't love me back. My love for you is not contingent upon the way you love me. I love you. It's a decision that I make. He also brings up the golden rule. And as you wish uh, that men would do to you, so do to them. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. As I've said before, all major religions have a version of the golden rule. This is the only positive one. This is the only one that requires an action. 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you. All the others are in a negative form. Don't do anything to anyone else you wouldn't want them to do to you. I always say you can live in a cave and completely, perfectly fulfill that version of the golden rule because you'd never interact with anybody. I'm not doing anything to anybody. I wouldn't want them to do with me because I never see anybody. But Jesus says, you're actually going to be out there living your life. You treat people the way you want to be treated. You do to them what you would want them to do to you. So today he tells us to love our enemies. And an enemy is anyone who feels hatred toward, intends injury to, or opposes the interests of another. Feels hatred toward, intends injury to, or opposes the interests of another. I thought of government. What, what was the president said? You, you know, the guy shows up and says, hi, I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. That, I love that line. Things about having, having and, and here I'm going to bring up some things that are pretty controversial. My point in bringing them up is there's two sides to these things. There's never any conversation or discussion or meeting of the minds, and if you're on the other side of it, whichever side you're on, you're the enemy. Automatically, you're the enemy because you don't have my best interests at heart. You're opposing me. So when I go to the gas, get gas, I realize it's now almost 350 a gallon. Well, why is that? Because the government made a decision to decrease oil and gas production. Okay? Why is that? Can't really have that conversation. When I was in college, I managed an all-night gas station, a Clark station. Anybody ever go to a Clark station? Yeah. I sold gas for 33 cents a gallon, except when we had gas wars, and that was 17 cents. Didn't really vary too much. But now that some decisions have been made, what really makes it more difficult for people to just live. Can we have the conversation? Can we talk about why these things have been done. Any controversy over COVID that anybody can think of? Don't go there, she says. I'm waiting to hear a Donald any minute. But it's so true. There's two sides to this. Right? There's masks, no masks. If you want to wear a mask, God bless you. The problem is the people on the mask side, not everybody, but they're saying, I just want to protect people. Why do you want people to die? You just want to kill people. No, I don't. I have reasons for what I believe. And on the other side, you mask Nazi. You know, it's either one or the other. You can't have a reasonable conversation about these things. Vaccinated, unvaccinated. What is the science behind the vaccine? I have natural immunity. Can we have a conversation about that? Or because I'm not vaccinated, am I the enemy and I just want other people to die? And on the other side of it, you're a, you're a vaccine freak who wants everybody vaccinated. Well, we all know it doesn't even work, right? I mean, isn't that how that works? So that there's this opposition. There's no conversation. It's hardened, fast positions, and we're not really making any progress with this. And it's just sad, you know? It's so funny. Um, <laughs> it makes life difficult because here's Vitalis. So he had to have a, a, 
COVID test before he flew back. By the way, I dropped him off at the airport at noon on Friday. Okay? He is following his route. He's not home yet. He'll get home, I think he'll get home this afternoon, our time, about 2.30. About a 48-hour trip. Unbelievable. Had a little FaceTime with him yesterday. It was 5 o'clock our time and 1 a.m. where he was in Doha, Qatar. But ready to roll, get on the plane, and keep moving. So he had to have a COVID test, right? So we go to this uh, over on Magnolia Extension, and you walk in, and here's Magnolia um, Urgent Care right here. And then right there is uh, Radiology Associates, okay? Same little area. Here you have the uh, doorway and a receptionist at a desk right there. And here you have a doorway and a receptionist at a desk right there. Here, you don't need a mask. There, you need a mask. Okay. The receptionist here gets up and walks to there to, to say something to the other receptionist, but she puts a mask on to go see, see her. When she comes back, she takes it off. I'm trying to make sense of this. I'm trying to figure it out. So we got him a PCR test, which is the heavy-duty one. Three of his bishop friends wound up flying from Tampa to Chicago, no problem. But then from go to Chicago to Doha in Qatar in the Persian Gulf, they wouldn't let him on the plane because they had the rapid test. That doesn't count. You've got to have the PCR test, so you're going to have to spend the night in a hotel from, with money you don't have and reschedule your flight and change all your plans and <sighs> because of the kind of test you have. This is the kind of thing that just makes people crazy. And so it doesn't bring about unity. It's like, mm, you know. And so we need to somehow find a way to work through this. There's all kinds of things. Climate. The climate change issue. There's two sides to this. But in the middle, there's a reasonable way to approach it. Can we have that conversation? Or do I always have to look at the other side as the enemy and they have to look at me as the enemy? You know, I've loved going around asking crowds, and I've asked you this, what percentage of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide? I asked, I think I asked, did I ask you this? What percentage of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide? What would you say? Given all the hype, what would you say? Give me a number. 50? 50 percent? Huh? What'd you say? Any number. Give me a number. 90? 50%, 90, 20, 30, it's 0.02. It's 0 0.02. It's two one-hundredths of 1%. Huh? Did you know that? Nobody knows that. I learned that from a guy named David Dilley who uh, did a little presentation. But I'm saying let's have a talk about science and reality and what is we doing and what's working, what's not working, rather than just seeing me as the enemy or the other side as the enemy. Gender. If I say that there's two genders, male and female, does that make me the enemy? In some eyes, I'm the enemy. It's really true. It's biblical. You're XX or you're XY. There's nothing else. You can identify as something all, all you want, but that doesn't make you that person. I look at the swim situation right now where the, where the, the man is a female and he's swimming against women. And what does that do to the women? who are now competing against the man. How do they feel about him? 
So I'm either a transphobic and I don't like trans rights or I'm for the women. That sets up a conflict. One side is the enemy and the other is the enemy. And how do we work through that? There's so many things today that we, that we are living through that, that, that lead to this idea of you're the enemy because you don't agree with me. Um, well, there are two things that are constantly true. These two types of people are the enemy. It never changes. Seminole fans and Yankee fans. That's it. Right, Charlie? <laughs> I knew I'd get a Donald on something. All right. We can hate those who hate us. That seems normal and natural. We can hate those who love us. Does that seem natural? It's not natural, but it happens all the time. Maybe your children, when they, they say, yeah, you were supposed to raise me and take care of me and provide for me. You owed me, but I don't have to repay that. I feel differently about that for whatever reason. You can love those who love you. That makes sense. Or you can love those who hate you. That doesn't make sense. That's godly. That's supernatural. And if the unnatural becomes natural, it is supernatural. Loving your enemies is natural. It is completely unnatural. It doesn't make any sense. But if it happens, it's supernatural. And the only way it can happen is if you allow God to work through you to make it happen. Because on your own, if you try this, you're going to fail. I will fail. There's no way that I can pull this off on my own. Can get kind of close to home. Jesus says this. This is a little unnerving. He says, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those in his own household. You'll find the enemies in your own household as people grow up and relationships change and things happen or don't happen the way that they thought they would. Relationships can really uh, dissolve into something you don't want to have happen. Deacon Karen did a class one Wednesday night not too long ago, and it was called Praying for Your Adult Children. We had a pretty good crowd in there. Do any of you pray for your adult children? Raise your hand. Hello. Yes, indeed. And we need to keep doing that. We need to keep doing that. I will say to a couple as they get married, they'll stand here and I will say, it would be like Kathy, and say, Kathy, Don is not the enemy. Don Kathy is not the enemy, not the enemy. You may feel like they're the enemy sometimes, but in reality, they're not the enemy. Don't look at it that way. Maybe at work, even in the church, people get issues, have issues, and they, they leave, and it's sad. They say you always hurt the ones you love. Molly Zell did a, did a breakout for us on Friday night, and it was wonderful and amazing. Molly's mother died when she was about four. Her dad remarried twice. Neither of those marriages worked. 
when she was a teenager at home with another one of her siblings. All the others had gone. The father got in the car and took off and just left him there in a house where the mortgage hadn't been paid and with no money. And then a little while after that, he committed suicide in a motel room. How do you work through that unless it's through the grace of God? I'm not telling anything that Molly didn't say. I'm glad I did. And everybody in here has got a story. Everybody's in here in here has something that happened to you that was very, very difficult, very hard, very unpleasant, very surprising. Didn't see that one coming. The truth is, What do you do? You don't hold it over their head. You don't keep bringing it up. You let God deal with it. We cannot be set free until we set them free to be blessed by the Lord. We cannot be set free until we set them free to be blessed by the Lord. Not forgiving someone, someone once said, not forgiving someone else is like drinking poison hoping the other person dies. You will just get eaten alive by what you've done. The bitterness, the anger, the resentment that just... And the other person's just moving along with their lives. They could probably care less. So how do we love our enemies? I've, I've talked on this passage before, and I kept this part in from the last time I did it because Fran Christman said it changed her life. So first thing is you greet them. You extend a hand. You say hello. Some people don't only turn the other cheek, they turn their whole body and just walk away. I want nothing to do with you, that's it. Second thing is, you disarm them. You do that thing that they least expect. I mean, I was reminded of this because of Andy Rose's funeral a few weeks ago. Years ago, there was a funeral. There was a, a member of Grace who was in hospice, and the, the daughter asked me, the son actually, asked me to go to hospice and minister to the mom. She's a member of Grace, but I'm, they asked me to go. I said, great. So we went. Mom died. We had the funeral at, living, at Christ the King at Living Waters. Out in the congregation during the funeral is deacon from Grace. And at the, conf at the communion time, I asked her to come up. I went like that. She always thinks, she, she's doing this. Mm -hmm. Always think of Robert De Niro in Taxi. You talking to me? Me? So she came up, and I said, I'd like you to do a chalice for communion. Really? You want me to do it? I said, yes, yes, yes. So she does the chalice, totally blows her mind. On the way out, she gives me a hug that I thought was going to stop me breathing. The reason is, that why this made an impression is because when I would go to a funeral at Grace before that, that's the only time I would go back to the church, she wouldn't look at me, much less shake my hand or hug me. She wouldn't look at me. But I did that, and something happened inside of her. And now when she left here after Randy Rose's funeral, because she came, Give me a big hug. Do something they don't expect and mean it. Um, 
Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker both had churches in London in the 19th century. On one occasion, Parker commented on the poor condition of children admitted to Spurgeon's orphanage. It was reported to Spurgeon, however, that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself. Spurgeon blasted Parker the next week from the pulpit. The attack was printed in the newspapers and became the talk of the town. People flocked to Parker's church the next Sunday to hear his rebuttal. I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today, and this is the Sunday they use to take up an offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take a love offering here instead. The crowd was delighted. The ushers had to empty the collection plates three times. Later that week, there was a knock at Parker's study. It was Spurgeon. You know, Parker, you have, practic you have practiced grace on me. You gave me not what I deserved. You have given me what I needed. Parker did something unexpected and godly to somebody who had hurt him publicly, and he was totally blown away by it. You do good to them. You make the first move. You take. You make the phone call. You, Dave, you text them. You email them. You, you make an appointment. You don't let it linger. You take action. In the grace of giving, Stephen Alford tells of a Baptist pastor during the American Revolution, Peter Miller, who lived in the Fra Ephratha, Pennsylvania, and enjoyed the friendship of George Washington. In Ephratha also lived Michael Whitman, an evil-minded sort who did all he could to oppose and humiliate the pastor. One day, Whitman was arrested for treason and sentenced to die. Peter Miller traveled 70 miles on foot to Philadelphia to plead for the life of the traitor. No, Peter, General Washington said, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. My friend, exclaimed the old preacher, he's the bitterest enemy I have. What? cried Washington. You've walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? That puts the matter in different light. I'll grant your pardon, and he did. Peter Miller took Michael Whitman back home to Ephrata, no longer an enemy, but a friend. refuse to speak evil of them. Proverbs says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. What am I saying about people? Actually, what am I saying about people when they're not there? Am I talking about people when they're not there? I hate it when I see spouses talking about their spouse in a negative way to other people. you hear something about someone and you're not sure, call them up. Call them up and say, I heard this. What can you tell me? True, not true, misinformed, little, little muddied, what is it? I appreciate it when people call me and say, I heard this. What's up? Then I can tell them, yeah, what you heard was true. Or, that's not what happened at all. Let me tell you what really happened. But don't go tell somebody else what you heard because it's a juicy story. We all like a juicy story. Can't wait to pass that on. You pray for them. You pray for them. Um, we had prayers of the people um, when we had that thing going on with uh, jihad and ISIS and all that. We prayed for the Muslims in the prayers of the people. 
I had a couple leave the church over the fact that we were praying for the Muslims in the church. They left. Why are we praying for them? Because they need prayer. Who doesn't need prayer? I was in Mwanza. I've told you this before, but I was there one time with Bishop Godfrey. We went to Mwanza. And um, seventh floor of the hospital, no elevator except for surgery. So if you've got a cane, you're not going to the seventh floor. We walk up to the seventh floor. There's a priest friend of his that's in the hospital. And the deal is this ward had four beds here and four beds here with just a curtain, curtain around it. We went in and prayed for his friend. Next thing I know, there's a, I'm in a collar, black suit and a collar. There's a tap on my shoulder, and I turn around, and there's a Muslim man, full Muslim garb. Could you come next door and pray for our friend? I said, absolutely. I pull back the curtain. There's four women and four Muslim men, and the women are all in the hijab, the whole head to foot, you know, eye slit, the whole thing. I said, absolutely. And I laid hands on the guy, and I'm praying, I'm praying for him in, in the name of Jesus. And I anoint him with oil in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. They were so thankful. Thank you so much. Any port in the store. Now, I wonder if there would be priests that would say, I'm not praying for them. I'm not praying for them. What, I don't know what, what do you believe? You're not wasting your prayers on you. <sighs> you pray for their highest good. What is the highest good that could ever be for someone to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior? Pray for the Muslims and pray for people who who hurt you, pray for, pray for those who don't know him, to, to encounter him and accept him as their Savior and Lord. That's our prayer for people that are out of the faith. We pray for people on Sunday. Grant your wisdom and discernment to all those who serve our country and community. For Joseph, our president, Kamala, our vice president, I got grief for including Joe and Kamala prayers of the people. I think of two people that need prayer, they're it. Rick and Marco, our senators, Ron, our governor, Neil, Kat, and Daniel, our congressman, Jeff, our county commission chair, Kent, our mayor, Diane, our superintendent of schools, Ira, the president of the city council, and Thomas, our Grace Christian school head. We pray for them every week, and I'm hoping that when we say those names, we really are praying for them to be godly leaders. Forgive them. The man I ate dinner with tonight killed my brother. The words spoken by a, a stylish woman at a banquet in Seattle amazed me. She told how John H. had murdered her brother during a robbery, served 18 years at Walla Walla, and then settled into a life on a dairy farm where she had met him in 1983, 20 years after his crime. Compelled by, compelled by Christ's command to forgive, Ruth Youngsman had gone to her enemy and pronounced forgiveness. Then she had taken him to her father's deathbed, prompting reconciliation. Some wouldn't call this a success story. John didn't dedicate his life to Christ, but at that banquet last fall, his voice cracked as he said, Christians are the only people I know that you can kill their son and they'll make you a part of their family. I don't know the man upstairs, but he sure is hounding me. 
John's story is unfinished. He hasn't yet accepted Christ, but just as Christ died for us, regardless of our actions or acceptance, so Ruth forgave him without qualification. Even more so, she became his friend. I, I've showed you this before, but this is just an example. When I first came to Grace, When I first came, this is a picture uh, that I was given by a, a, an eighth grade girl. Shay Knight. Remember Shay? Yep. Yep. When I first came, there was a woman who was in charge of the auction, and she had embezzled $74,000. I, I hadn't been here but a month. And I got called to their school office at 6 o'clock one Friday night. I had just picked up Bill and Dana from the airport. So I got that call. I said, well, this isn't going to be good. So I went, and they said, this is what's happened, and uh, we can't tell anybody. And I said, I want everybody, I want all the parents in the church on Monday night at 7 o'clock. No, 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 it'll be the end of the school. We want, I want all the parents in the church on 7 o'clock on Monday night. And I went there. In the meantime, we had worked with the state attorney's office to kind of work through this, okay? And I had the head of the school, the head of the school board, the senior warden, and me, and I said, here's what's happened. Here's who did it. This is what we're doing about it. And if you, if, you, unless you, if you don't hear it from one of the four of us, don't believe it. I told the church the following Sunday, so everybody knew. Three weeks later, I got a call from the Star Banner. Understand there's been a theft at the church. Yes. Come on over. Heard the story, and a week later, there was a story in the paper that said basically, church, school turns theft into story of prodigal son. If I had written an article to make the church and the school look good, this would have been it. Then I get this. I get this from Shay. And I have this hanging in my office. This was March 17, May 17, 1998. Dear Father Don, this portrait didn't start out as Jesus, but, but when I took it home to finish it, that's who it became. I started it with art. I didn't want to keep it, and I couldn't think of anyone else uh, who I wanted to give it to besides yourself. This portrait is like a gift from me to you to say thanks for our little discussion in April because I think it really helped me a lot. I went to a party on Friday, and Brandy's mom, the one who stole the money, came to pick her up at the end. My other best friend and I were there on the other side of the yard when we saw her, we both just stared with dropped jaws since we couldn't believe she was there. We both knew that we should go and say hi or at least do something to show that we were not totally shutting her out. My friend just sat there staring and saying, I'm just not ready to forgive. Just when I was about to say me too, I remembered one of the stories you told me. I told my friend that I wasn't ready to forgive either, but Jesus has been ready from the start. As I walked across the yard, to Mrs. So-and-so, I asked Jesus to forgive her through me because I knew that I couldn't all by myself. I went up to her and gave her a big, long hug. And even though she never said anything, I think she knew what I was trying to say. Now I feel about 20 pounds lighter by forgiving her. And I just really wanted to say thank you to you 
for teaching me how to forgive. Please pray for my friend because she has yet to learn how, even though I tried to teach her. Thank you so much again and hope you like the portrait. Love, Chuck. And that's, this hangs in my office. Um, it's something that's a treasure to me. And it reminds me of the importance of doing things that we don't feel very comfortable doing, but we do it because God is doing it through us. She didn't want to do that, but she knew that it was the right thing to do. And she really was reconciled with this mom. You know? So I would ask you to think about these things today and ask yourself, what is God asking me to do? God's radical love requires our kind treatment of those who mistreat us.